Hi, everyone. Welcome to the McMaster Emergency Medicine Podcast. We've been on a hiatus for the last few months, but we are back. The goal of this podcast has always been to bring the McMaster community together. We hope to continue with this mission, but also to add in some more medical content to help keep everyone up to date. In the main segment, we plan to review interesting cases, as well as discuss evidence updates and guidelines. In the resident segment, we will continue to hear about resident experiences with research, specialty year choices, and we'll add in some summaries of the resident journal clubs. As we start back up, we plan to release the podcast every two months and we'll work towards getting back to a monthly release. We hope you enjoy our updates and let's get started off with the first episode where we will discuss a cool case and some recent resident research. Please remember that the information in this podcast is intended for medical education purposes only and does not constitute medical advice and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical conditions in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. Any cases that we discuss on the podcast represent a composite of patient experiences and medical information. They do not represent one patient specifically. So for our first case, you're working at your local emergency department and EMS brings in a patient who is hypotensive. She has been feeling generally unwell for the last week with flu-like symptoms, including a sore throat. She called EMS today as she developed a diffuse erythematous rash and her symptoms had worsened overall. On your physical exam, you notice that her arm is very swollen, tender, and erythematous. She mentions that she recently fell and cut her arm and that since then she has had some infectious symptoms and dirt and pus falling out of the wound. On initial presentation, the patient is mentating well, but feels presyncopal and appears cyanotic with this diffuse erythematous rash. Initial vital signs are a heart rate of 130, blood pressure of 50 over 30, temperature of 38.3, respiratory rate of 30, and SATs of 97%. You manage to increase her blood pressure from the initial level of 50 to 90 systolic with 2 liters of crystalloids and max dose norepinephrine. Given the significant hypotension, diffuse rash, and recent infectious history, you are concerned that the patient has toxic shock syndrome and you administer antibiotics. Her initial blood work starts to come back and there are significant elevations to the creatinine, LFTs, and white count and lactate. Given the requirement for pressors, the patient is admitted to the ICU. Group A strep is grown in the blood 10 hours later. During the ICU course, the patient is started on two more pressors and eventually requires dialysis and intubation. Plastic surgery debrides her arm the next day and finds a necrotizing infection, likely subsequent to the recent traumatic injury. Let's go through some key learning points on this case. Toxic shock syndrome, further described as TSS, can be categorized as strep or staph TSS. Strep TSS is the more severe of the two associated with a mortality of up to 60%. This is caused by exotoxins produced by the strep pyogenes bacteria. Strep TSS develops in the context of an invasive group A strep infection or necrotizing infections. Often there will be no clear cause to the infection. Staph TSS is less severe and is traditionally associated with foreign bodies such as tampons or nasal packing. The symptoms may be very vague but include shock, altered LOC, flu-like symptoms, and diffuse rash. Sites of injury can have severe pain sometimes out of proportion, infectious signs, or signs of neck fash, which we'll describe later. Some patients have no skin findings at all. End organ damage can be found, including DIC, ARDS, 
renal failure, hepatic failure, and cardiomyopathy. Neck fascia can either be polymicrobial or monomicrobial, which would be the case with a group A strep infection. It can present with edema, erythema, fevers, severe pain, and skin changes which might include necrosis, fillet, or bruising. It may also be very hard to diagnose clinically and needs to be visualized in the OR to make a definitive diagnosis. Imaging such as CT can help identify soft tissue gas, but again is not definitive like surgical exploration. And I'm sure you've all had a radiology report before saying that necrotizing fasciitis is a clinical diagnosis. Luckily for us, the treatment for neck fasci is the same as for TSS, except for the addition of surgical debridement. Moving back to TSS, the diagnostic criteria include hypotension, multi-system involvement, which would include two of renal failure, liver failure, ARDS, rash, coagulopathy, soft tissue necrosis. In addition, these patients will have group A strep isolated in body fluid cultures. Lastly, the treatment of strep TSS includes the management of shock, multi-organ failure, and debridement if needed, as well as antibiotics. In general, we use beta-lactams and clindamycin for treatment. High-dose clinda is essential here because it helps to inhibit toxin production from the strep pyogenes bacteria. A common ED cocktail might include clinda, vanco, and peptazo. Of course, we will be treating these patients before GAS has been confirmed in the blood, and antibiotics may need to be adjusted as a sensitivities result. IVIG may also be considered as there is evidence to suggest that it improves mortality. To summarize, Strep TSS is caused by the strep pyogenes bacteria and its endotoxin production. There may be no clear cause, but typically TSS is caused by invasive group A strep infections or neck fasci. Diagnosis involves group A strep isolates on cultures and multi-system involvement. Treatment is as normal for septic shock with the addition of high-dose clinda and potentially IVIG. Just remember, next time you see a sick patient and they seem sicker than they should be, consider toxic shock syndrome. For this month's resident section, we have Dr. Ben Forstel, one of our fourth-year residents. He and his colleagues, who include a bunch of other MacEmerge staff and residents, recently published an article on the use of supraglottic airways in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Today, Ben is going to take us through the main findings of the study and how it might apply to our practice. So Ben, first of all, thank you for joining us. I just want to ask, what motivated you and your team to do this study? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Spencer. So this study which was done with myself and Sophie, one of my co-residents, uh, in addition to multiple eMERGE docs at Mac Emerge, so Samir Sharif, Kamate Elawati, Michelle Wellsford, in addition to both local and international collaborators. Our study was motivated by the fact that when we see patients coming in with EMS, with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, Sometimes they'll come in intubated. Sometimes they'll come in with a supraglottic airway in place after EMS has often tried pre-hospital intubation. And often you'll hear about the delays in care associated with the tracheal intubation attempts. And so the motivation behind our study was to determine whether supraglottic airway versus tracheal intubation would be the best use of our resources for our pre-hospital providers for providing initial uh, advanced airway management for adult patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. 
Our goal, being a systematic review and meta-analysis, was to summarize the available randomized controlled trials. And by being able to incorporate the results of all of the trials, be able to provide increased precision and increased sample size that an individual trial would not be able to afford us. You know, this is one of those things where people always come in with some sort of airway from EMS in these situations. And I feel like no matter what you see the patient has, it's difficult to understand what actually happens in the field. So questions like this are are really important. So what are the main findings that you discovered during your study? Yeah, so our study was a meta-analysis of only randomized control trials, so those which should have the least amount of bias and therefore the highest certainty of evidence. So despite a very comprehensive search, we only were able to find four randomized control trials, but three of the randomized control trials were quite large. So we had over 13,000 patients included in our meta-analysis. And so we looked at outcomes that are both immediate, so time to airway placement, return of spontaneous circulation, to longer-term outcomes, which are probably more patient-important, but things we might see a little bit less in the emergency department. So survival to hospital discharge, survival with good functional outcomes. And so... With our meta-analysis, we found that superglottic airway use probably increases the rate of return of spontaneous circulation, and it certainly leads to a faster time to advanced airway placement. However, these benefits in initial resuscitative outcomes were not reflected in longer, more patient-important outcomes. So superglottic airway use may not have an effect on survival at longest follow-up, and also may not have an effect on aspiration, which is kind of interesting given we're always concerned about the possibility of aspiration events with superglottic airways. It's, I, when I read that, I, I found that very interesting because that's I, I would say that's probably one of the main reasons that we tend to not use them. Just to clarify, can I ask, when you say probably with respect to the results, what does that mean from a statistical sense? Yeah, so the use of probably in May to describe outcomes is part of the grade methodology, which we use to assess the certainty of the outcomes. So a moderate certainty outcome, such as SGA use probably increasing rate of return of spontaneous circulation, the use of probably is there to reflect that uncertainty still with this outcome. It's something that even when we are submitting to Critical Care Medicine, the journal which uh, this article is published in, reviewers often have difficulty with this language because it lacks the precision that we normally think of when writing scientifically. However, it is in line with the best reporting from our grade working group. And given the excellent methodologists we have in our paper and their influences with the grade methodology, which was actually developed here at McMaster is why we use those terminologies such as probably for moderate certainty or may for low certainty. And I think this is an important thing to look at when anyone's reading a systematic review, incorporating grade methodology, as it might seem initially a bit uncomfortable, but the more you notice it, the easier it is to interpret with this terminology used. Yeah, I think that's just an important point to point out because it seems like it seems like you're just choosing a word but I know there's a lot more that that goes into it so I just wanted to 
to point that out. So thanks for explaining that. So it sounds like kind of the main things were that using the LMA can probably decrease time to having an advanced airway and increase ROSC. And it doesn't necessarily show increased risk of aspiration. Is that fair to say as a summary or? Yeah. So what I would say is the superglottic airways are definitely going to be faster to place and will probably increase the rate of return of spontaneous circulation with maybe no increase in aspiration events. Unfortunately, these differences are not reflected in the patient important outcomes such as mortality. However, I would say using this information in the emergency department comes with a few caveats. First, all of these studies are in the pre-hospital setting. And these were all intubations performed by our EMS providers who in none of the trials had access to things like video laryngoscopy, which we know increased first pass success rates for tracheal intubation. Second, these results also don't tell us what to do when the patient comes into the emergency department. So someone comes in, there's a cardiac arrest ongoing, they have a supraglottic airway in. I still don't know what to do with that SGA based off of this data. Do you intubate the patient and take out the SGA? Do you continue the resuscitation and maybe only change it out when you have sustained ROS and the patient's going to ICU? So I think this information is probably the most informative for our pre-hospital providers, but is also probably the most informative of what you could do in a lower resource setting or ones with teams where there may be people less experienced with advanced airway management. It may be simpler just to place that SGA and run the resuscitation if you feel like you're the only person who would be comfortable with advanced airway placement in your setting. That is a... One of the things that I struggle with is when I see a patient with supraglottic airways, I always wonder if we should change it or not. You know, the resuscitation seems to be going pretty well. Do I really need to change this? I think one of the things that this study answers for me is it gives me more comfort in knowing that when a patient comes in with a supraglottic airway, I might not need to change it as soon as I might have in the past. And I kind of have a better understanding of why it's something that's beneficial to do in the field like I've never intubated someone on on a kitchen floor right I imagine putting a uh, supraglottic airway in is a lot easier so this study you know brings brings me comfort with things that I probably already assumed were true but it it it's comforting in the sense that we have data that supports those types of things um, so I'm wondering kind of on that note is there anything for any emergency physicians listening that this would change in your practice at all? Or, you know, like you said, it's maybe more relevant for pre-hospital care, but uh, is there anything that might change for you? Again, I think in the pre-hospital environment, moving to an SGA first approach would be best supported by this evidence while simultaneously increasing the education on tracheal intubation techniques and bringing adjuncts to the pre-hospital environment, such as video laryngoscopy to improve first pass success rates. When we bring this to the emergency department or in hospital setting, all of our best evidence and was reflected in guidelines is also coming from this pre-hospital, out of hospital cardiac arrest, airway management. And so until we do have RCTs 
studying in-hospital cardiac arrests, witness arrests in a higher resource setting, I think this also does provide us with the best evidence on what to do in more resource-scarce or team-scarce environments. I think if you have a high-performing team, multiple physicians comfortable with intubation with CPR ongoing or respiratory therapists, and you have access to video laryngoscopy, which will give you a very high first-pass success rate, that may still be the best choice. We'll be moving ahead with intubation first. But again, if you're working overnight in a small emergency department, you do not have RT assistance, it's a one-doc shop, doing an SGA first approach will probably be best while you're focusing on the other cognitive barriers of running that resuscitation. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway. Um, if you can and you're and you feel like you have the resources to intubate, then that might be the best. But if you're struggling or you don't have all the resources, then I think this study points in the direction that a superglottic airway would also be pretty adequate. So thank you for talking to us about your study. It's great work that you and the team at McMaster did. Um, I'm so happy that we have people like you here who are doing things like this and tr trying to answer the questions that we all want answers to. So I appreciate everything that, that you and your team did. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Spencer. Um, if anyone wants to read the manuscript in whole, uh, happy to share it around as well. It's now published in Critical Care Medicine online. Awesome. And we will leave a link to the paper um, in the show description as well. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of the McMaster Emergency Medicine Podcast. Please see the description below for the references for the case material and a link to the article that we discussed. We hope to see you again in a couple of months.